It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia has been my home since 1989, and I'm delighted to have made it my home and raised my children here. I'm delighted also, as the Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, that the 5th Federal Reserve District, that the, the bank, which uh, oversees the 5th Federal Reserve District, which stretches from Maryland to South Carolina and in includes almost all of West Virginia, I'm very pleased that Richmond uh, is the home of uh, the headquarters bank for uh, the 5th Federal Reserve District. Um, my focus today uh, is going to be on uh, the economic outlook, particularly at the national level. Um, I will be making some comments on the Virginia uh, economy and outlook um, as it relates to the national outlook. These are broadly, the outlooks are broadly similar. The Virginia economy tracks the national outlook uh, fairly closely. Uh, and has through this recession and recovery, um, although there are a couple of differences I'll point out. Um, and uh, towards the end, I'll make a few comments on the outlook for monetary policy. Before I again, I begin, I have to mention that um, my remarks uh, reflect my own views and are not necessarily shared by my colleagues outside of the Fifth Federal Reserve District, uh, particularly on the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, but those familiar with uh, the tradition, the intellectual traditions of Richmond, Virginia, are well aware of the uh, independent streak that's characterized the Commonwealth for years. To start with the big picture, process of recovering now from a very severe recession. And despite the unique causes of the contraction, the recovery is turning out to resemble uh, many of the recoveries we've seen in the past. Signs of strength are particularly notable right now in manufacturing, business equipment and software investment, and consumer spending. As with other recoveries, though, uh, there are other segments of the economy that are lagging behind the broader pickup in activity, notably employment and construction uh, spending. Inflation has remained um, quiet uh, and, in fact, quite moderate so far. The most out likely outcome for the outlook um, is for this recovery to strengthen further in coming months. Uh, and uh, it looks, from the looks of the most recent data, as if that, that outlook is firming up uh, every single week that we've been getting data in recent days. So that's just a broad brush view. Um, what I want to do now is spend a little time filling in the canvas, uh, painting a few of the details in. So there are as, uh, a wide range of indicators uh, that show uh, how economic activity has been expanding since the middle of last year. A real gross domestic product, real GDP, for example, has grown at a 3.7% annual rate over the last three, covers, last three quarters. And that's a bit above um, our long-run trend, which uh, best as we can figure lies between two and three quarters and 3%. Uh, so good figures on real GDP over the last three quarters. Now, granted, some of that uh, increase was due to one-time factors. Last year's fiscal stimulus measures, for example, provided some uh, significant boost to activity in the second half of last year. But that effect, the effect of the fiscal stimulus will largely fade away over the course of 2010. And the way GDP is calculated, it received an additional one-time boost from the completion in mid-2009 of a sharp inventory reduction that is typical of recessions that occurred in late 2008 uh, early 2009. Demand uh, since then has been, since the, mid, uh, that, the end of that inventory correction, has been met entirely from production. And that's what GDP measures, and that's why we've been getting a boost from the end of the inventory drawdown uh, last year. 
uh, look at the fine brush strokes of the most recent GDP report uh, supports the idea that we're on a sustainable upward trajectory. Let me start by taking a look at consumers. Uh, their spending accounts for more than two-thirds of total spending in the GDP accounts, uh, and it is now clearly on an upswing. Uh, during the recession, that is from uh, the beginning of 2008 through the middle of 2009, real consumer spending fell at a 1.2% annual rate. But in the last half of 2009, consumer spending increased at a 2.2% annual rate. And last quarter, first quarter of this year, it increased at a 3.6% annual rate. That turnaround is likely to be durable in my view. Uh, during a severe recession, consumers tighten up on spending, in part due to job losses and the associated cut in current incomes, uh, but also due to their weakening outlook for future income growth. When the worst of the bad news begins to ebb, a growing number of households begin to sense that their jobs are in less jeopardy than they had thought. And that pickup in expected income uh, combines with the release of pent-up demand for big ticket items, and it leads to a pickup in consumer spending. So while the unexpected adverse shocks that disturb household income prospects uh, have the potential, as always, to set this process back, the baseline outlook for consumer spending suggests growth at a reasonably healthy rate in the months ahead. That brighter picture is not limited to consumers, however. Business investment in equipment and software usually displays large swings in recessions and recovery, and our latest experience fits this pattern quite well. After falling at nearly 15% uh, at an average annual rate during the recession, this investment category bottomed out in the third quarter of last year and has risen at an average annual rate of 16% over the last two quarters. Again, prudent firms often defer capital spending in recessions, uh, and that creates pent-up demand, uh, which releases itself and boosts spending in the early part of the recovery, uh, like we are in now. While sales have fallen in many industries, technology continues to advance uh, despite uh, contraction in overall activity during a recession. And as a result, there's an array of opportunities out there to deploy new capital in ways that improve business processes and consolidate IT infrastructure and thus meet internal rate of return hurdles despite uncertainty and potential softness in sales for some firms. So I expect equipment and software spending to continue to rise this year and beyond. This good news on spending has had a clear impact on the supply side of the economy. In manufacturing, we have, we've seen a sizable swing in activity. Industrial production, for example, fell almost 15 percent uh, in total during the recession. Since June of last year, however, it's risen every month, resulting in a cumulative increase of over 6%. That turnaround is evident in particular in consumer goods, especially autos, in business equipment, in raw materials, uh, and even in the production of construction supplies that, that increased last, last quarter. Forward-looking indicators are also painting a brighter picture. Uh, the Association of Purchasing Managers uh, that publishes, an, an, an inform, um, uh, publishes information on new, on new orders on a monthly basis, um, they have an index 
that, that takes on a value of 50 when it's break even. The number of reporting expansion equals the number of reporting uh, declines. That index fell to a record low of 22.9, so far more declines than, than increases in new orders um, as of December 2008. But it's been above 55 for every month since last July, so well into the positive territory, uh, the net positive territory. And it hit a sky-high level of 65 last month. So strong, strong indicators on new orders um, that show that this pickup in manufacturing is likely to continue. We get similar evidence from our own fifth district uh, indicators of manufacturing, uh, which also show a clear pickup in the last couple of months. Manufacturing's also been aided by the pickup in growth among our major trading partners since the first half of last year. A year ago, real exports were falling, uh, nearly a 30% uh, annual rate. In the first year, quarter of this year, however, real exports grew at an annual rate of 5.8% for a third consecutive quarter of positive contributions to GDP growth. That increase in export demand is clearly visible on Virginia's waterfront. Nearly every measure of export activity for the Port of Virginia in the first quarter shows year-over-year -year increases that surpass the growth achieved over the past several years. While this activity is still below pre-recession levels at Virginia ports, Virginia firms and workers are clearly benefiting from this recent upward trend. Virginia's economy also benefits from the many internationally owned companies that call the Commonwealth their home and are helping to drive increases in business investment as well as export activity from the Commonwealth. So I should put all this good news in the proper perspective. Um, while the beginning of the recovery usually does mark uh, the return of economic growth, it can take a while for that growth to make up all of the ground lost during the previous contraction in economic activity that occurred during the recession. Thus, most observers expect a full recovery to take several years, and I see no reason to quarrel with that assessment. In particular, take a look at the labor market, where we lost 7.3 million jobs during the recession from the end of 07 to the middle of 09. Then in the last half of 2009, GDP and manufacturing production were increasing, as I said, but we lost an additional 1.1 million jobs in the second half of 09. So that's raised the prospect in many analysts' mind of another jobless recovery, such as the one that followed the 2001 recession, where employment fell for a 21-month period after the official end of the recession. And by the way, looks quite likely that June or so of last year is going to mark the official end of the, the last recession. Um, it may take some time for the NBR Dating Committee to get around to declaring that, but um, most analysts agree that that's the likely uh, end of the recession. Um, this time, though, I think employment is already on a path to steady growth. Payrolls expanded by 162,000 jobs nationally in the first quarter. And the pickup in demand is already, that is already underway is likely to keep employment rising this year. It'll take some time, however, to make substantial pr progress reducing the ranks of the unemployed. The loss of over 8 million jobs in total since the recession began caused unemployment to surge from 4.6% in 2007 to 10.1% nationwide last October. Since then, unemployment is edged down to 9.7%, but its elevated level is an indication of just how much ground remains to be covered in healing our labor markets. In Virginia, 
the downward job trajectory was not as steep as for the nation as a whole. But the recession produced significant job losses here nonetheless. During the first half of 2009, for example, the Commonwealth experienced a net job loss of 87,000. But with economic activity improving during the second half of the year, only 34,000 jobs were lost in the last half of 2009. More promising, during the first quarter of this year, Virginia had a net gain of 3,700 jobs, with the most recent data for March placing Virginia among the, most fast, among the fastest growing states in the nation as far as payroll employment is concerned. Another encouraging characteristic of the recent job gain is that we're seeing increased activity beyond education and health services and the government sectors. For example, professional and business services picking up, trade, transportation and utilities, leisure and hospitality. These are turnarounds from several months ago. Still, with many thousands of jobs lost since the recession began, as I said, uh, the Commonwealth needs strong and steady job growth over the coming months to recover the lost income uh, for workers and to help stabilize state and local uh, government revenues. Virginia's employment, unemployment rate uh, has continued to climb, unfortunately, from the pre-recession low of less than 3% to an elevated reading, current reading of 7.4%. Uh, Virginia's unemployment rate has generally trended below the national average for a uh, decade or more. Uh, in the recession, it rose as the national unemployment rate rose, but never peaked as at high a rate as the national rate. Um, it's increased in the last couple of months, opposite to the national trend. But again, as I said, um, this has been a time of net job gain in Vir Virginia. So that discrepancy in trends over the last couple of months in unemployment is attributable to drawing in discouraged workers, formerly out of the labor force, now looking for jobs and counted as unemployed. And this is typical of a recovery. Job growth picks up, but unemployment doesn't fall as rapidly as the job growth would suggest because you're drawing in workers who weren't lurking, work, looking for work formerly and were there, therefore not counted as unemployed. So every recession has its dark spots. And dark spots are evident certainly today. Non-residential construction spending, a category that includes stores, offices, warehouses, uh, stuff like that, has fallen 15% over the last seven quarters. And leading indicators for this sector, such as architectural billings, vacancy rates, all suggest that non-residential construction will continue to be very soft for an extended period. And then there's residential construction, where everyone knows the background here. We had an incredible boom-bust cycle in housing. Uh, the number of new housing starts rose from 1.4 million in 1995 to 2.1 million in 2005, before falling to just over half a million uh, last year, uh, 554,000. For perspective, it would take 1.1 million housing starts a year to accommodate population growth with an unchanged home ownership rate. But during the boom, we built more houses and bigger houses than we evidently ended up needing. And so currently there's a large number of homes that are vacant nationwide. And the va that nationwide housing vacancy rate hides the fact that we have sort of more square footage than we really want right now. And so it's going to take some time to grow into the housing stock we have, much less need uh, to invest at the rate at 1.1 million starts per year. 
Virginia didn't escape this boom-bust cycle in housing uh, that caused several metropolitan areas in the Commonwealth to experience annual price increases in excess of 20% uh, annual rates uh, at the peak in 2005. Uh, but that was followed by prolonged decline and eventual contraction in home prices during the recession. More recently, home prices appear to have stabilized and existing home sales and building permits have improved relative to a year ago. Still, this sector of Virginia's economy remains soft and varies quite a bit across the state. It's likely to remain flat on average uh, going forward for some time. But even though there are still weak patches in this recovering economy, on balance, I think consumer spending and business investments in equipment and software are going to be strong enough to drive growth uh, in overall ec economic activity and keep this recovery going. We still haven't talked about the financial sector though, and it's hard to imagine a solid recovery in financial markets uh, until they, uh, it's hard to imagine a, st a, st a strong recovery in the overall economy until you see financial markets also signaling expectations of a stronger economic environment. Here I'd note that the, f the worst of the financial market turmoil of the last few years, as you, you're probably well aware, is definitely behind us. A large volume of borrowing and lending transactions are completed every day. Stock prices have risen significantly over the last 12 months. Uh, risk spreads, borrowing rates to corporate customers have come down substantially. Um, Still, we regularly, regularly hear complaints these days about firms being unable to borrow. Now, this is a delicate subject and a tricky one. It's certainly true that there are banks and other lenders who've experienced high losses um, and are now facing a higher cost of capital in uh, credit markets. Those lenders um, are, are now re reducing their outstanding loans and firms that have traditionally borrowed from these, these capital constrained lenders, in other words, their traditional longtime banker that they have a relationship with um, turns out to be capital constrained, well, they're gonna have difficulty finding new bank loans or even retaining their existing credit lines. But the majority of the banks appear to be ready and eager to lend to creditworthy customers. And that's what they tell us and the evidence suggests that, that that's true. And, and that makes sense because that's what banking's all about, finding new creditworthy customers at reasonable terms. So while more borrowers may ha need to shop around now in this environment, um, I think credit market capacity is there uh, and is sufficient to, to support productive investment and allow a solid recovery to proceed once loan demand picks up. So the economic uh, outlook would not be complete, at least not an economic outlook from a Federal Reserve official, without some comment on inflation. As recently as July of 2008, the 12-month inflation rate was calculated from our favorite index, the index for price, uh, personal consumption expenditures, was 4.5%. Uh, unacceptably high. But of course, that was a period during which the price of crude oil had just run up to $140 a barrel. The core inflation index, which leaves out food and energy prices, was at 2.7% at the same time, also unacceptably high. That episode is one of several unwelcome instances over the last decade of energy price surges spilling over into core inflation. That pattern suggests that monetary policymakers might need to reconsider the strategy of treating energy price gains as bygones uh, if the futures market for energy prices is flat. 
Given the broad upward trend in energy prices over the last decade and commodity prices more broadly, responding more aggressively would have, in hindsight, would have kept the overall inflation rate lower and closer to a rate I, I view as ideal. Inflation has fallen since that surge in early 2008. Over the last six months, the overall inflation rate was 1.8% and the core rate was 1.1%. Those numbers are quite reasonable and I'd be quite happy if inflation remains about where it is now, between one and two. But the public expects to see higher inflation in the future. For example, the median inflation expectation figure from the University of Michigan's most recent survey of consumers is 2.9% and other surveys yield similar results. These readings on inflation expectations have been persistently high and that's troubling since they raise the possibility that people think the FOMC is going to be unable to contain inflation uh, or at least conduct monetary policy that way and to keep it from rising significantly during this recovery. Certainly monetary policy will be challenging in the period lies ahead that in the period that lies ahead current policy settings are still at emergency levels uh, with the federal funds rate near zero and our balance sheet two and a half times uh, the size it was three years ago. These settings are currently providing substantial monetary stimulus. As a technical matter, whenever we begin to normalize policy, it will be straightforward to sell assets, shrink our balance sheet, and raise the level of short-term interest rates. The difficulty, of course, is that no one wants to tighten policy prematurely and needlessly dampen the recovery. So recognizing the right time to begin normalizing our monetary policy settings is going to be hard and reasonable people can differ about this. For my part, I'm going to be looking for a time at which economic growth is strong enough and well enough established to warrant raising our policy rate. It may make sense, however, to begin normalizing our balance sheet in advance of raising rates. Normalizing our balance sheet would mean reducing its size, but also returning to our traditional treasury-only asset holdings. My worry is that we will let the obvious slack in the economy lull us into a false sense of security regarding inflation, which could allow inflation pressures to build before we raise rates. That happened in 2004, and it could happen again. So we at the Fed will need to be careful to avoid waiting too long to raise rates. As a longer-run matter, the federal budget deficit implied by current and planned fiscal policy concerns me, and it ought to concern every American in my view. If economists can contribute anything to the policy process, it's our willingness to identify unsustainable trends and remind people that unsustainable trends don't go on forever. And clearly, our current fiscal policy is on an unsustainable trend. Uh, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, estimates that under current legislation, by 2012, federal debt as a fraction of GDP will have more, more than doubled in 10 years, with further increases occurring each year unless major changes are made in spending programs and taxes. Now, granted, our fiscal problems are not as, as severe at this point as those of Greece and some other European countries, but I don't think we want to find out how close we can get to a full-blown fiscal crisis before taking corrective actions. In broad terms, we all know what to be, needs to be done, cut spending or raise taxes. If we don't, an adverse sequence of events will, will be set in train. Investors will in, be increasingly reluctant to hold more treasury securities. 
yields will continue, uh, will consequently rather rise significantly. The cost of capital will increase for firms producing in the United States. Capital formation will suffer, productivity growth will slow, and thus real incomes uh, of our households will, will stagnate. In short, the well-being of future generations is at stake in this. My hope is that policymakers will find a way to move fairly quickly to make the adjustments needed to put the budget on a sustainable path. The sooner we make the necessary adjustments, the longer the period over which we can spread the adjustment cost, and the more likely we are to avoid fiscal crises of the type Greece is now experiencing. Despite these serious policy challenges, however, I should say that I remain fundamentally optimistic about the capacity of the American economy to generate sustained improvements in standards of living. Our country has repeatedly demonstrated an unsurpassed ability to generate technological and organizational innovations and deploy them usefully and profitably to deliver improved products and services uh, that help consumers and businesses. While we have struggled from time to time with economic policy as a nation, and no doubt we'll continue to struggle in the years ahead. This should not distract us from our signal achievements, nor should it dim our hope for the future. That concludes my remarks. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, while we have uh, Mr. Lacker up here, do you have a few minutes for uh, some questions? If we Certainly. Any questions from the audience while we have such an esteemed economist uh, up here on the stage? Yes, sir. I have a few questions, if I could. Uh, to what extent would the rise in uh, personal consumer expenditure is offset by a drop in the savings rate? And the second question would be, to what extent uh, does the continuation of the effect of zero interest rate policy Very good questions. The first, um, to what extent was the rise in consumption uh, growth offset by uh, a fall in the savings rate? Um, in the first quarter data, savings rate was 2.7%. Uh, I think it was 3.5 or 6, something like that in the fourth quarter. So um, a substan there's a substantial, in the report, it shows a, a moderately substantial drop in the savings rate. Now, a bit of a cautionary note. Um, the savings rate is calculated by taking measured income and deducting measured consumption. Um, and um, the income numbers have some components in them that are uh, very difficult to measure on a timely basis and are often substantially revised. And the pattern we've seen over the last decade or more is is that the most recently reported savings rate is close to zero, um, but then uh, over subsequent years, income keeps getting revised up. So, um, you know, 10 years ago, measured uh, our measure then of savings rate was zero. Now it's more like 5%. So um, uh, don't place too much weight on any one quarter's movement in the savings rate. It is broadly true that consumer credit has fallen, uh, that people are on net, households are on net repaying debt, and debt is falling. That's adding to net worth, um, and uh, they're spent, they, they seem to be willing to devote a lot of spending, a lot of what would otherwise be spending power to uh, repairing their balance sheet. Um, some of the reduction in consumer credit outstanding has, has been, um, writing off debt, 
so people defaulting or getting into foreclosures and their debts just taken off their books and the bank's books. Um, and so that ends up sort of counting as, um, it's not clear whether that's counted as income. And if it did, it would count as savings since it's an increase in the net worth of consumers. So there's some other statistical peculiarities there. Um, the fear obviously would be that consumers are sort of back to binge spending. I don't see consumers as terribly exuberant right now. Uh, they seem, it, it just seems to be a spread of um, confidence that people aren't going to lose their jobs. So, um, a spread of confidence that we're not going to see a recession that's much, much deeper than the one we've seen. So people, the beginning of a recession, you don't know how deep it's going to go. Everyone pulls back, and then people began sort of coming back to the market, as it were. The second question was out about whether low interest rates contribute to bubbles. Um, so I take, uh, you know, any conversation about bubbles should begin with the definition. I take bubbles to mean um, an increase in one sector of the economy in both either quantities or prices or both uh, that's greater than historical averages and significantly greater than the economy as a whole. Um, I think those things happen all the time. Otherwise, we'd still be making buggy whips um, and working on farms for the most part. Um, and I don't think it's the central bank's job to stamp them all out. Uh, what, we can st what we should focus on stamping out is um, excessive risk-taking. Um, my own sense of what happened in the last decade is, and with the housing boom and bust uh, is that it was driven by moral hazard, by implicit government guarantees to uh, the housing GSEs and to large uh, institutions that were viewed by their creditors as too big to fail. Um, and the, the proper way to control that is through regulatory constraint, supervisory oversight, uh, rather than manipulating interest rates. Um, right now, I don't, I don't see bubbles forming. I don't see um, you know, a major risk-taking problem on the horizon. Uh, that's not to say it won't emerge, but I think it's just, it's too early and at this point, and I haven't seen anything that suggests we're, we've got some trouble brewing. Having said that, though, um, count on it that I'll be um, vigilant about um, avoiding the error of uh, waiting too long to raise rates, as always. Any other questions? Uh, up front here. Yes, if you could explain what your comments just a bit about the uh, public uh, policy related to either need to raise taxes or decrease spending in order to avoid damaging future generations' abilities to, to finance the So to some extent, it's, it's only a question of when, not whether you reconcile this path of spending with taxes. So if, if you're going to take as a premise leaving the spending path unchanged, and that's obviously you know, a, a questionable, it, you know, it's obviously debatable whether that ought to be the premise, but let's just take that as a premise, then it's a matter of raising taxes soon or later, because uh, eventually we'll have to raise taxes to, to be able to get the debt on a path that's sustainable, to reduce the rate of increase in the debt to the rate of increase in the economy so that we're not devoting an increasing share of output every year to repaying holders of federal debt. Um, so, um, 
you know, the generation we raise taxes on, you know, is going to be worse off, and the generation we can avoid raising taxes on will be better off. So it's a matter of sort of intergenerational distributional consequences. Waiting kind of makes the baby boom better off, but makes our, our offspring worse off because they're going to pay a higher bill ultimately. Um, so it might come down to whether we care about our offspring or not. I, I take it as a premise we do.